Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. Hey, JP. How's it going, John? It's going good, man. So you are one week into a new job, and I haven't heard anything about it yet. We just started rolling, so I want to know how things are going over, can I say the name where you work at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I work at Open Listings. Yeah, it's awesome. So first, like, what's your role, and how are things going one week into a new job? It is officially, uh, because last week was a holiday, it's officially been a full business week. <laughs> <laughs> right, as of today. Yeah, so my, my title, I love titles, titles are great. Uh, my title is Full Stack Engineer, which Ooh. is pretty sweet. And it nice. is exactly, exactly what it sounds like. But it's cool because our stack is Rails and React. Um, so Ruby and JavaScript, two of the programming languages that I very much enjoy programming in. So it's really cool. And they work kind of weird hours. It was one of the kind of the first things I noticed just in like texting you in the past week. You work like 10 to 6 or 10 to 7? Something like that. Those are like the general hours that people show up. And I th I think that's like new a new thing. I want to say someone had alluded to previously how the devs used to work like the regular 9 to 5.30 or like something like that. Nine to, I don't know. I'm sure it has something to do with like traffic or or maybe mm. I think it just makes more sense that dev or like, sorry, or engineering or whatever is there beyond um, customer service being there. Because like, I think it sort of makes sense that we're there a little bit later in case something happens. It's not like, so like if customer service says like, oh, hey, such and such is like broken and it's like already five o'clock. Oh, like, you can like have time to fix it. That's interesting. That's my hypothesis. I think also like developers are just kind of a more nocturnal breed. So allowing them to come in a little bit later might make more sense in general, I think, as a culture. I'm a weird yeah. developer because I always wake up super early. I'm usually up around 630 every day. I'm like, I like coding early in the morning, which is really rare. But okay, so how was it jumping into a new code base? Have you gotten your first PR merged? Like, are you moving yeah, the cool thing is that I actually have some changes already live. It's really wow, cool. That's awesome. I PR'd on like my second day. I PR'd on my first day, but it was like the readme. <laughs> you know, you gotta you gotta get the low hanging fruit. And then I PR'd on my second day on a on an issue that I got help like through the process of like shoveling things down the pipeline. So that was really cool. But what happens is we work in two week sprints. And so today was like sprint planning. So what we do is at the beginning of every sprint, we sort of just like sit down for like an hour and a half and we like sit down with our project manager and we all commit to like our workload for the week or sorry, our, our workload for the sprint. So what we can take on for two weeks and we have uh, this is the this is the funniest thing. So we have like a point system to rate the level of difficulty of issues. And obviously it because, you know, we're engineers, it's like on a Fibonacci scale. So like the, <laughs> the scale is like one, two, three, five, eight. And so we try <laughs> and so we try to have eight points worth of like issues that we committed to for the sprint. Oh, interesting. So either you're taking a one eight point issue or four two point issues type of a thing. Yes. However, we try very, very hard not to have eight point issues. In fact, as soon as they reach like a five, then we break it out into what they call like an epic. And so an epic, I believe, is contains maybe it contains like a two a two and a one or something like that cool so you don't want to have like just one eight even though at the end of the day if you have like two epics that's basically like having two five well, i don't know 
You know what I'm saying? Like it could be right. Like it doesn't make it all that, that different, whether it's three epics or a single eight. Like in right. in practice, in like in practical terms, that's super interesting. Thanks for sharing because this is even though you were working as a React developer before, it was a little bit different of a role, and you weren't front end and back end. It wasn't full stack, so it was a little bit of a different role. So I think this is exciting, and it's good to hear about like how that went and getting on board with that and jumping into it. So thanks for sharing. That's super cool. Yeah, uh, I'll answer your question before we move on about like how it was jumping into the code base. Yeah. So it's like a massive app and it's uh, it's so big. I can't even begin to wrap my head around like every little nuance, but I will say they've done a really good job of like onboarding me onto like the low hanging fruit issues to like, okay, now you're going to be exposed to like the mailer part of the app. And then on this issue, you're going to be exposed to like this part of the front end of the app. So I've like very slowly started to understand like how things are working. But yeah, it's really cool. There are some like nuances that I just have to like ask for help for because like it yeah. used to be a backbone app. And so there's all these like backbone little pieces here and there. And I only know React. Luckily, a lot of the backbone stuff is just like JavaScript. So I can like infer what it's doing. Yeah, but sometimes I'm like, out. I'm like, what is, I've never seen that before. And then sure, lo and behold, it's like, because it's like how backbone operates. Yeah, that's interesting. That's tough. So does your role cross over at all to the mobile app or only to the web? The interesting thing right now about our mobile app is that we use a lot of like web views because we just wanted to like bootstrap something. So I think in some of the web views, I've seen some code that definitely pertains to like if you're on like a mobile device display like this version or something like that, I think. Um, however, I did just get, um, it, it's not test flight. There's a different, I think it's called Crashlytics or something like that. There's like a different software that you can install on your phone that lets you like beta test like mobile yeah, apps. there's a bunch of them out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I just got access to that today. So I believe we only have like one guy working on it. And I think I will eventually have my hands on that, too. Um, currently, my like commitment for the, the two week sprint um, definitely has me working on the front end and the back end. I have like a three pointer that um, requires me to touch like the full stack, which is really cool. That's super exciting. Very cool. It's interesting. There's only one person on the current mobile app, but I think the product inherently is more desktop. I bet most mm -hmm. users are on desktop because it's like shopping for a home. So I think a lot of people do that on a laptop. They like sit down and look for a home that way, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. How did they like onboard you and getting familiar with the domain? Like how did they walk you through what the product is and how that works? Did they expect you to do that on their own or did they kind of have a curriculum <laughs> or what, what was that like? No, I had back-to-back -back meetings on my first day. Literally, if you looked at my calendar, it was like blocked off, blocked off, blocked off, blocked off. And then on Thursday of that week, I also had like a, uh, this is real estate type thing. Oh, interesting. So they they walked you through some type of a class or course that was just teaching you about the domain in general, like picking yeah. up the accounting for dummies book we talked about. That's interesting. Yeah. I Did literally you learn had... anything interesting about uh, real estate in general? Um... I don't know about interesting more so or just like I learned about real estate. Like I didn't know there was like two agents in the process in right, the United right. States, whereas like somewhere in like in Europe, they only have like one agent that handles the buying and the selling. So that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. I think even just like these little um, little short like Reader's Digest classes of like one hour presentations like help you so much. It's insane. Yeah. Um, just understanding what the space you're working on. That's really mm -hmm. smart of them to try to put you that in that crash course on what the domain is. Mm -hmm. It's odd to me though that like teaching you about the domain initially was just kind of back-to-back -back meetings. So it's just kind of like you sit with this person for an hour, they'll tell you about this and ask them questions type of a thing. Kind of, yeah. So when I say back-to-back -back meetings, that was also like I had like an HR meeting and then I met with oh, um, okay. there was other like, like a product person. Too. 
Right, 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 right. Okay. Right. And then I had like an official like, this is real estate. Like, what is real estate 101? <laughs> cool, cool, cool. So let's uh, get into the chapter for this week. This week, we're still on Pragmatic Programmer, Chapter 5, Part 2. I'm going to re- run through the tips real quick, and then we can start kind of digging into the meat of this chapter because it's got some really good stuff. So tip 40, design using services. Tip 41, always design for concurrency. 42, separate views from models. 43, use blackboards to coordinate workflow. Awesome. So you want to walk us through tip 40, JP? Yeah, I think this one's going to be a good episode. I'm really, uh, really excited for chapter six too. But before I get too ahead of myself, uh, the first tip for today is design using services. And I feel like a fucking broken record because I don't know. It's like if you can make a soundboard of us talking about service objects, like if you play like a drinking game or something like that for every time we say service object on this podcast. Oh, gosh. It's uh, once, yes. an, once an episode at least. <laughs> we just talk about, we just love service objects, but hey, you know what? They're just plain old Ruby objects. But yeah, so this um, so this tip in particular was written in the context of the previous tip, which was tip 39, um, basically about temp- temporal coupling, mm-hmm. which was officially analyze workflow to improve concurrency. And so that was basically like, how can you decouple the temporal coupling of your app? Like yeah. if you thought that about- was your, the- margarita that was the idea of making yeah. a margarita there's more you can do in a process yeah of making a pina colada and what yeah, ma- not you- a margarita sorry <laughs> damn it uh, like what you can do uh concurrently because like typically as programmers we like to think in a linear fashion and sometimes it's like good to th- not think in a linear fashion and actually think of like what steps in that linear pro- progression can actually be done at the same time but anyways the this tip about using services is really just about how you can break those those steps up into services so that you can just like little plop in these little little modules. Yeah, I like the quote that it talked about services. It said, quote, services are independent concurrent objects behind well-defined consistent interfaces. And even just like little stuff of the way that you initialize them, the way that you call them can really speed up your workflow and make all these things a lot more plug and play and consistent. And if you're thinking about these like little Lego bricks that can, you know, call your Stripe service and pull it down or call your push notification service and pull it down, it just makes things so much easier. I don't really necessarily understand what they mean about service objects in the context of temporal coupling. That gets a little bit lost on me, but I totally, I mean, you're preaching to the choir about service objects in general. Yeah, so I think um, the reason that it was in the context of temporal coupling is because I don't I don't think it's like exclusive like exclusive to temporal coupling. I think it just happens to be a fact that like if you design using like service objects and these like well defined objects, it's like easy to just like plop things in yeah concurrently versus like having like a linear very imperative workflow. Yeah, imperative is a good way to say it. Like one thing really depends on the other. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about one of the projects I run, I manage the Stripe service object, which is nice. It's extracted into a nice service object, but a lot of the methods are dependent on each other. So for example, like charge card currently is throwing 500 errors if you try to charge a card, but they haven't added a card. And that's a temporally coupled service object. Like it should elegantly degrade if you're trying to charge a gar- card if they haven't added a card. So like there's certain steps that it has to go through to use it. And the interface isn't very clean and it's not very resilient. Because if you try to do certain actions, it's not handling the lack of the card well. And so that was like one little example I thought about when I read this tip. Mm-hmm. Tip 41 is always designed for concurrency. I really like this idea. Um, basically, it 
forces you to think through things a lot more carefully. And the quote from the book was, you're not alone at the party anymore. Like you have to <laughs> expect things to happen, multiple things at a time. And it just really goes back to the separation of concerns, but even at another level now, because it's like the separation of temporal coupling where you're allowing things to happen to a specific object at the same time. So you have to think about things like, should this be available during a transaction or, you know, it, can this be in a, become in a state that's invalid if two things happen at once? Um, and, and it's a difficult thing to do. But the other thing that I really liked about, you know, always designing for concurrency is that you can always make it non-concurrent through your interfaces. So the ability to do things at different times simply makes the whole system more robust. Yeah. And it's not to say that like every single thing needs to be concurrent. It's just saying like things can be grouped together. And this is like very much what the previous tip was from part one. But yeah. I think it's just like reiterating the fact that not everything needs to be linear. Like steps that happen at the beginning of an algorithm can happen at the end of the algorithm. Um, but if you don't design in such a way that those two things are like if um, they're bound to that time on a, like time on a linear fashion, then, you know, bugs can happen. Yeah. So one thing uh, that I wrote down from this section was that like when you think in a linear fashion, like those assumptions can lead to like super sloppy code and like mysterious bugs because you weren't accounting for things happening out of order. Yeah, it was kind of reminds me of what we were talking through last week. I'll mention real quick about the whole idea of an onboarding wizard and, you know, the need to do things out of order potentially or change the order for a business need. Like, oh, we want to collect phone number before email. And it's like, oh, shit, the whole way I designed this completely depends on one step being done before the other. So, you know, and at the same time, I should allow a user object to be edited those two fields concurrently. Like there's no reason you shouldn't be able to modify a phone number at the same time of modifying an email address on the same user object. And that shouldn't fail. I should design it in a way that it's robust enough to not only be done in any order, but to be done at the exact same time, steps two and three. And it just, it really forces you to create simple systems and simple objects that are just like dead simple. This does that one thing. And, um, you know, I've been working with a Rails consultant who's a lot more experienced than me. He's been kind of coaching me through some of the code bases and mistakes that I make. And the thing that he always is pushing me toward is just like, make your controller just crud. And if you need another controller, just make another controller that just does that thing. And maybe that one controller that does that one thing just has one action. That's it. It just has an update action on that controller endpoint. So more and more, I'm just splitting everything out more and more into dumber and dumber, very simple actions to happen. And I think that that really thinking about always designing for concurrency is just another way of making you do that and separate the concerns out all the way to their base elements as much as you can. Yeah, and this is a little bit of a digression, but I think it's worth talking about how you have like controllers, which are just methods that only do one thing. And I think there's there's so much to say about that. Like that's really valuable. Like even just me jumping into this new code base at Open Listings, I've noticed that in the back end we have like a lot of like methods that only do one thing, and it's made it really, really, really easy to follow like what's going on, especially when you have like when you have like a method at the top that calls a bunch of these other methods, like in, in like a Boolean fashion, like this and this and this and not this. And I could just like read that, understand what's going on and then go to those methods, which only do one thing. Um, 
And you don't like appreciate that until you go to a code base that's not like that. And then you have all of this logic jammed into one method and you're like, what the heck is going on here? And you have to like follow that. But like when you really just extract things and have like single responsibility methods, it actually does make um, a world of a difference. And on the on the flip side of that, when I was um, looking through the code base of a couple of my friends who just graduated the coding dojo in Burbank, um, it's a little different because they're working on a React app, but they had like their core business logic like the because they're making they're building this app of course but their core like business logic was in this like 60 line function in Ugh. a in an action creator so an action creator is oftentimes like what makes the api call on the front end for like a, Re a react redux application sure. so like where they were so not only were they um making the api call so the action creator basically all it should do it should do one thing like think in programming typically when you have a function or a method it's only really supposed to do one thing and for an action creator for react and Re react slash redux applications for those who are uninitiated basically all it does is it returns an object after making an api call um, in the in their particular case and it sends back a type and the response from the API. And that's all it's supposed to send back. But what they were doing was not only were they doing that, but they were like calculating all of this logic, um, oh, calculating percentages. Yeah, and their variables were named like X, Y, Z. And I was like, oh Ooh, my goodness, this is like- <laughs> That's so and, hard. And, and, and I was like, um, and I was just reading it and I was like, what is, um, what is the variable X? And they were like, um, and they had to like read through the code and stuff. And I had to give them like a little pep talk about like, you know, the importance of good naming, because like at the end of the day, let's say you don't work on like this particular file for like three weeks. Like the last thing you want to do is spend even three seconds trying to figure out what that logic is. Like the easier you can make it on yourself when you're like reading through your code later on, like the less resistance there is and like the easier it is to manage or even like edit or add features to like whatever code it is that you're writing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good tip in general. But yeah, that was a little bit of a digression, but I think I think I definitely think we're talking about. I will also say I think th that it was at that moment that I was like, you know, maybe I'm not as like you know, noob as I think I am because you know, we're always like I'm like forever a junior developer in my head, but then it was at that moment I was like, you know, maybe I like maybe I do know some stuff. <laughs> maybe I've learned a thing or two. Yeah. <laughs> I think that naming cannot be oversold like the importance of really taking time to just take that extra two seconds to think of a name and name something having at like completely random variable names of xyz i don't even like it when i have to like do a sort on a block you know if i'm like taking mm -hmm. and like filtering a block and it will be like xy sort by y i don't even like doing it that way i usually put variable names even in that instance i rarely will name a variable something that isn't human readable and like makes sense it's funny though, cause like I've been using a lot of linting lately and like trying to make my lines not too long. And like I keep having this thing where I will pick shorter variable names just so my line isn't as long. I'm like, oh no, this is a bad approach. I need to go back to great names and split the line into multiple lines if I need to, to have great names. Cause it, it's like, it doesn't matter. Either just make the line long. It, it doesn't matter. Like I shouldn't be doing that to give up <laughs> good names, you know? Yeah. So those types of things are really important. So I think it's really important. Yeah, and um, it's funny because I feel like people don't write good variable names because they're afraid of having a variable name that's like this long. And I'm making a gesture of how big my like. It's because like I don't know like good variable one names. One hand's breadth. Yeah, one <laughs> exactly. Like people don't want variable names that have like four underscores in it. But like sometimes you really just need, you need it. good variable you need names it. that like yeah. read 
read like plain English, like what they are. And yeah. I really hope that this is going to be a tip. Some, if it's not a tip, whatever, but I'm sure it will be like a tip later on yeah. in this book of like name your variables well and think of good names. And that oftentimes I don't even like using abbreviations. I think sometimes abbreviations can like convolute like what the actual variable is. I, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. And I will say you're, if you're using abbreviations or like more generic variable names, especially like in the JavaScript world, it's easier, at least I'll say with my little bit of experience with JavaScript, it's easier to accidentally reuse a variable in a way you didn't intend mm -hmm. because it kind of leaks out to other methods depending on how you're scoping your JavaScript. Um, it's just like one of those things that actually happened to me in Ruby the other day is that I was calling a method name and it was interdependent on the existing method that was already there because I was like, I wasn't thinking about the way that I was naming them in a way that was intelligent. It's really important to have just good names. So that, all that digression, which was good stuff, <laughs> came from the tip 41, which is always designed for concurrency is what we were talking through. So this idea of thinking about things being able to happen at the same time, it forces you to make dead simple objects. And that's how we kind of digressed into that. So the next tip here is tip 41. Two, which is separate views from models. Yeah, and you know, I, I forgot to do a little bit of research, but I wanted to look up like when the birth, the advent of MVC was. But this is oh, that's yeah, because this is basically maybe while I talk, you can do a little bit of a little bit of googling. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so separate views from models is basically talking about like um, the the MVC architecture that we're all so familiar with today. But what it is, is it's basically saying like separate your data from your view logic. That way you don't have to duplicate all of your data in like multiple places. So this buys you a lot of flexibility. You can use like viewers on different data models. So you can have like just one user model and then use that everywhere in your views. Like we're so used to as like Rails devs, right? Um, but the view doesn't necessarily have to be like a UI. It doesn't have to be like an ERB or like a, it doesn't have to be part of like a templating system. The view sure. is just an inter interpretation of the model. So it doesn't need to be graphical. Um, so the controller is more of a coordination mechanism. So you have like a model, which is like your data, your controller, which is like the way, uh, like a controlling mechanism. This is exactly what the name is. <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. then you have a view, which is the representation of the data. So... It could literally just be like output in your console if that's really like, if that's what your app was, if it was like a command line app, for example. Yeah. Or like I have several controllers and apps I work on that render HTML, PDF, or JSON, mm -hmm. depending on the response they're getting, which is like a pretty standard Rails thing. But I love the elegance of that and the structure that Rails gives you to do that. And I'm sure that that carries over into other frameworks. Uh, MVC was actually introduced in Xerox Park with the Smalltalk language mm. in the 70s. And I feel like Smalltalk, everybody talks about it, which I've never written or know how Smalltalk works, but I feel like it's the mother of all like very human, very usable programming languages. It was a little bit higher level, one of the first like scripting style languages. I feel like a lot of people talk about it that way. That and I think Perl's the other one? I don't know. I don't know my history of programming languages very well. And I was actually just mentioning this a minute ago when we were talking about concurrency, the idea of just making a new controller, like just make a new controller every time you use it. And more and more, like I'm finding myself making controllers for different states of objects. So like archived users controller versus trying to reuse the users controller or put a new method of like archived users within the users controller. Like you don't need two index methods that do two different things. No, fuck it. Write a new controller, make the new folder. And it makes maintainability and what I'm doing so much more clear. And if you have those little nuances you need for the you know, archived users controller, it's so much cleaner to have its own view completely distinct 
from the other models and not trying to use that stuff. And I really like another concept, which I actually, when I was reading the chapter yesterday, was introduced to, and I'm like trying to think about all the ways that I can use this, which is having specific debugging views. And I think it's a really interesting concept. And I have one that I currently have on one of my apps, which is we have a lot of weird stuff that goes on with notifications and dismisses and them coming back and dismiss for others. So there's a lot of notifications nuance. And I actually have kind of a God view of notifications for our system, which is not useful to anybody <laughs> but me. And so from one of the admin panels, you can actually see all users pending notifications, how many they have, how many are dismissed and like whether they have dismissed them or not. And I was like, that debugging view saved me so much time instead of trying to read the logs and see what's going on with users to understand the state of notifications. I kind of have this God view, this debugging view of notifications for all users. And I think that that concept, giving that a name, a debugging view, and using that more could be really, really helpful, at least on the admin side, to understand what's happening with things. And it, like, it doesn't have to be pretty, and you can just kind of stick stuff on the screen that if you're, especially if you're like migrating something or working through a specific feature, it might be helpful to kind of aid that transition to have a way to see that in a way that's super helpful and surfaces, you know, maybe the IDs of items or maybe some of that more metadata that's more important just to you. I don't think that'd be a good practice to lean on all the time. Ideally, you're building stuff that you don't need a debugging view, but I feel like as a crutch to kind of transition, it could be super, super helpful. You know, a, a perfect example is this notifications view I'm talking about because like in one of our systems, there's kind of a, a coach for a group of users. And essentially when a coach shares management of a group of users, if one coach dismisses their notification, it dismisses the same notification for that item for the other coaches so that you kind of know that it's been taken. And so like that concept of dismissing for others on your behalf had a lot of nuance in it. And so that's where this kind of debugging view came from. I built it a few weeks ago, but I didn't have a name for it. And I think that could be super, super helpful. So build out new views for everything. Each view should have its own controller. And don't be afraid to even have something like a debugging view if it I mean you could even have a user's debugging view and that could make sense for you if that you know if it fits your application no I love that and that's not to say that the debugging view it, it could be like just something you throw away you know but like it I think it's cool because the way you describe it makes it seem like you don't necessarily need to be hopping into your rails console all the time so like instead yeah. of like spinning up a con and you know depending on how like big your application is sometimes spinning up rails console might take like three seconds, which is a lot slower than if you just had a debugging view. Yeah, I think from a security standpoint, it's a lot better to have like a debugging view instead of being in the console. That's just hairy. Like you don't want to be in there and accidentally run something, especially in the production console, which I don't know if that's what you're talking about. But like some people, they'll go bareback in there. I've done it a few times, but I really avoid running in the actual production console. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I've, I won't say I haven't done it here and there when I need to see something, but it's like, well... Maybe a better approach would be something like this debugging view. And we could talk about in future episodes too. There's a lot that you can do besides consoling into production. So mm -hmm. don't do that. Stop doing it. Yeah, dude. Also, one thing I wanted to mention before we go on to our next tip is um, it's interesting because I feel like when you get introduced to an MVC framework like Rails, for example, for us, yeah. you're first taught like these are the CRUD actions, you know, index, show, edit, new, delete, whatever. And then you're taught like, only stick to these controllers because, you know, you might have this weird urgency to have like a list controller, which is, hey, just do an index. It's at, like the, you know, the typical route and mm -hmm. corresponding route and uh, method name is actually index. So you just like stick to those. But then like you're afraid to make like your own controllers. It's always like this weird thing. The first time you like, it's just a Ruby file. Like you can make 
any file you want in the controllers folder, in the models folder, and it doesn't have to inherit from like application controller or whatever. It could literally just like if you don't want it to. But yeah, like you can literally just make controllers that don't follow the CRUD conventions. It's not like a bad thing. I think I think people yeah. like say that so you don't make controllers like um, like a charge card controller right. in a user's controller, like a charge right. card method in a user's controller. Right, right, and also that too. But also making controllers where you should just be using the CRUD, the typical CRUD conventions. Yeah, uh, I think it's hard because there's that chasm between creating new objects, even conceptually, like understanding that the idea of charging a user's credit card should probably be the creation of a new user's, a new payment object. So like right. instead of the idea of the action of charging a card, it's really, it should be a new payment action and it should be a user's payment that's being processed. And so my brain, when I was initially doing development work, you know, four or five years ago, five, six years ago now is I wouldn't even have had the foresight to understand that this should be its own object or its own concept. It's like, oh, it's a user's credit card that should be in the user's controller and just throw another action in there to charge a card. I think this is something I was guilty of in one of my first applications. And I just think there's a, a lack of kind of a domain conceptual approach just for designing objects. But like when people are starting, how much domain type div, domain driven design can you really share with them in the beginning? Like they're just trying to get their heads around this idea that there's these virtual objects. So, but I think that where a lot of my kind of the online education and I, I did general assembly as well, their bootcamp, I think it did fall down in the idea of just like, being free to spin up your own controllers and your own models. It was always like, oh, just like have less objects. And like, yeah, I think having less objects is good, but then you have this whole tyranny of, if you have less objects, they have to be way more complicated. And it's way better to have a ton of dead simple objects. But there's really that leap between like not wanting to create a new file for some reason. And I even feel that sometimes. It's like, oh, I don't wanna have to create a new whole new file tree for this and a whole new view tree, but it's like, that's way better than trying to force it on something else. But it, it's mm -hmm. really hard to balance that sometimes, I feel like. It is, and I think a lot of that just comes down to experience because I've worked on a code base with former associates of mine where I've, I would get like endpoints for like an edit, for example. But like in the back end, for example, like if I, was a, if I wanted to edit a user, I would have separate endpoints, which obviously had separate controllers and routes and everything for like if I wanted to edit the user's picture and if I mm -hmm. wanted to edit the user's whatever and if I wanted to edit, the, I'd have like three different things that could have just been like one patch to user. Right. But it's like, and I know that it wasn't like a complicated association. It was literally just columns in the user table. Mm. And I was like, this feels wrong <laughs> like like why right. am i making so many different yeah and see that's the balance between like simple endpoints that do one thing in that case it makes no mm -hmm. sense and i find myself when doing api endpoints actually abstracting a lot of the base nested models into a simpler endpoint mm -hmm. like my user's object might depend on four things but at the end of the day i may just expose a single endpoint in that controller and i think again that's every view which the api is its own view should have its own controller and i actually really don't like the rails convention of sticking all of your api controllers into the one controller you know like where it's json respond to unless you're doing like one little javascript action i really like having its own set of inherited controllers that inherits from api controller instead of application controller there's so many benefits for doing that um because i think it's its own view again this tip is separate views from models and i think the api is a totally separate view um 
and it should be its own view. And don't be afraid to spin up your own views and own controllers for whatever you're trying yeah, to do yeah. as we jump into the next tip here. You should separate your views from your other views. <laughs> yeah, you should. And they should all have their own controllers. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's moving into tip 43 here, which is use blackboards to coordinate workflow. And blackboards, I was so caught off guard by this because I thought they were saying like use whiteboards and I didn't really understand this concept, but this is actually a programming concept or a kind of a domain concept of a blackboard. And I really liked this concept overall. This was a super powerful concept once I started breaking it down and understanding this a little bit. But the idea is you oftentimes have a lot of data that's really different from each other. And it used this metaphor of like there was a detective trying to solve the murder of Humpty Dumpty, whether he was fell off the wall or whether he was pushed off the <laughs> yeah. wall, which is an even more nerdy analogy <laughs> than the whole margarita analogy we had. Pina colada, excuse me. But so if you were thinking about this detective trying to solve this murder, they would have in the police station a blackboard on the wall and all these different detectives would put up everything they knew about the incident that happened. So the coroner would come up and write his report about what happened. You know, the field police officer would go up and he would write his report of what happened and what he saw, the broken shells of Humpty Dumpty Dumpty when he fell off the wall. And then you'd also have, you know, the internal agent who found the phone records and he'd write those on the wall. So the idea is that there's all these disparate agents operating at different times so it's not coupled via time they have different skill sets and they're all contributing to the single repository of information the same content that's for the same context but it's all different types of pieces of information so one is phone numbers one could be a, a coroner's report so there's all this different type of information so if you think about this conceptually it allows you to have a repository of objects collected in one place that are being contributed and read from by all types of different consumers and creators. This is like a very broad concept and I really wanna to try to break this down as we move through it. But I think the metaphor holds up to some degree. And the first thing I thought of is I have a new application that I'm working on, a React app, React Native app, and I'm doing the API backend for it right now. And we had all of these distinct views for this concepts of like articles, and we had a different view for reminders. And then we had a different view for like recent discussions. And then like very quickly, we came up with this concept of a feed. So we actually have a feed endpoint that actually outputs a bunch of different types of objects. So the user opens the app and there's kind of, it's called today is the view. And so it's like kind of this feed view and it has things like reminders and it has recent group discussions. It has pending tasks, it has all different types of things in this feed. But creating this metaphor of this feed, that's kind of like a blackboard because it accepts all these different types of objects cleaned up not only the API endpoints, but also from a user experience point of view, like it makes so much sense to have all these different types of items collected in this one place. The other examples it gave was this idea of someone who has a mortgage application to manage mortgages. And there's a lot of different things like paperwork and reports and information and data that needs to happen. And it's not always linear, but it needs to all be associated in one place. So I really like this idea. I also think it could be a really slippery slope, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, JP. I've been ranting too long on this Blackboard concept. Yeah, man, this was, a, this was an interesting one. I wasn't quite sure what part of the process this is referring to. Like, is this referring to like the planning and design stage or is this like actually in the workflow of your application? Does that make sense? Oh, it's in the workflow of the application. Oh, okay. So that changes everything. Yeah. Now I have no idea. Now I'm like totally lost. <laughs> 
at least that's how I read it. Because I, I was reading it the way you were, because the tip, again, is tip 43, use blackboards to coordinate workflow. So I thought this was going to be about like avoiding temporal coupling right. and like getting with your team and talking about a blackboard. No, scratch all those pre-notions. It's a technical approach, more of a strategy for organizing information from a technical approach mm -hmm. within your application, which is having this kind of bucket or a blackboard, as they call it, to be this general model or placeholder for different types of disparate data. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, this honestly, this one confuses me because it just seems like a weird contrived metaphor for just having like modular code. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think you're totally right, actually. I think the point he's trying to make is that all of the code can contribute to the same system mm -hmm. and read from the same system without having to talk to each other. But what he's getting at and the nugget here is that if your code is modular enough, you can actually have the same objects from different systems live in one place. Right, and I think that's supposed so to be the imagery. So you can have something... Yeah, and that's the imagery that he's trying to express here is this idea. So I think this tip honestly encapsulates a lot of this chapter overall, which is make sure everything's living in its own little respectable bucket and it can contribute and read things accordingly. And for me, getting my head around how to build out and construct this feed endpoint for this API, it makes so much more sense now to have this kind of blackboard approach or metaphor. And I think it's just another iteration of what he's talking about because if I am making smart objects that don't depend on each other, it's really easy to grab those objects and toss them into the feed and throw them to that JSON endpoint. It's super easy to do, but if they're not, if they're interdependent and they depend on each other, it can be really difficult to use those objects or services mm -hmm. and populate that feed accordingly. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense now that we like actually talked through it because I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm totally lost on this one. I sort of understood like the whole like metaphor of like the Humpty Dumpty investigation, but I thought that was more yeah. talking about like the planning process of like when you plan things out, like, oh, you put, you put evidence here, you put evidence there. Now here's a good quote that kind of encapsulates it. Quote, the Blackboard style of programming removes the needs for so many disparate interfaces, making a more elegant and consistent system, unquote. Okay. So the idea is you can pull together a bunch of stuff into one system, kind of like polymorphism, like we were talking about in a way. I also think this could be a terrible slippery slope and you could have like one bucket kind of object that would hold way too much stuff and have way too much logic in it. Um, but I think that it's an interesting approach and... If you can't use your objects in this way, they're probably too interdependent. That's the other kind of tip within the tip. So this was a great chapter. I'm going to quickly review the tips that we went through real quick. Tip 40, design using services, 41, always design for concurrency, 42, separate views from models, 43, use blackboards to coordinate workflow. Do you have any uh, picks for us this week, JP? So my pick this week is, I, mean, I probably picked this before and I always say that, but my pick this week is a book called Programming Elixir by Dave Thomas. And so I've actually have gone through a decent portion of it now and I am on the Elixir train. I'm, I'm like an Elixir evangelist. It's, it's like such a cool language and it's like a much different way of approaching programming and I have like this little algorithm that I figured out and of like how to flatten an array and the cool part about elixir let me just step on my uh what do they call it soapbox yeah on my soapbox for a second <laughs> so like there is the concept of like control flow so you can have like case statements and if statements 
and unless statements, similar to how Ruby has its own unless. However, it's very, I wouldn't say rare, but it's, you don't reach for those things first. So what you do is use recursion. But okay, so let me take a step back because there's also at the end of the chapter where it like shows you how to use like, rec like recursion techniques. It's like, hey, you probably want to use recursion for everything, but don't do that because <laughs> like you shouldn't. But what you do is instead of writing like case statements or if statements like you normally would, you just define the same function because it's a functional programming language just made of functions. So like if you wanted to do a case statement or like an if statement or something like that, what you do instead is you define the same function multiple times and given the parameters, you do a thing called pattern matching. And so if the pattern of the parameters matches that function, it'll run that particular function. And I realized, no way. Whoa. I, yeah, so I, I'm sure you understood that looking at like the code snippet that I wrote. Yeah, I'm looking at the code snippet, which I will link in the notes. <laughs> because That's I'm sure so that makes no sense. <laughs> can I say this a different way? I think that we can help. So the idea is that these read kind of like Ruby methods, but the idea is that not only the method name matches what should be run, but it's acceptable param types. Exactly. So, yeah, so you can have the, a method named by the same name, but with a different set of params that does different things. That's super interesting. It also seems like it could be kind of a bitch to debug, potentially. Potentially. I haven't written enough to, like, yeah. to know. but Really I think it's, interesting idea. It's really cool. Wow. Yeah, so like if you wanted to pattern match like the case that your function receives a zero, you would just put zero as the parameter and make sure it, you yeah. know like it would catch that case first or last or whatever order you want it to be caught in, and it's really cool. So like and and the data structures in Elixir are all different. So what looks like an array is actually just a linked list, where the first item in what looks like an array is actually like the head, and the rest of the uh, the rest of the list is just like the tail. Yeah. I don't know. It's really cool. It, it, That's it's, super cool. Yeah, and I'll link it in the show notes. And what's funny is that Dave Thomas is the same author of the current book we're going through, which is just Yeah, funny. yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. My pick for this week is actually Sketch Mirror and Sketch Prototyping. So it's just like kind of getting it under the hood. And I've been using Sketch a lot lately for some different prototyping work for this uh, React Native project. And I didn't know this, but they actually have like a little iOS app that you can install and like click through your Sketch mockups. And what's super nice is it it links via Wi-Fi to your application running on your desktop. So like if I'm sitting with a client, they're like clicking through the app, they can be like, oh, I wish the font weights were bolder. And I can just be like H3, increase it, boom. And then all of a sudden everything they're clicking through on the device wirelessly just updates. That's so cool. Yeah, it's nice too, because sometimes I will lose the context of the size of what I'm working on. Like I'm working on a 15 inch display, but I'm designing something for a, a iPhone. So it's like, it can be really good to just have my iPhone sitting in front of me, live linked to Sketch Mirror, and just my mockups are changing live on the device. So you can see it pixel perfect on the Retina device, what it's looking like. And it's a free app if you have Sketch Mirror. And then Sketch Prototyping is the idea that, you know, a specific button can kind of click through to other things. And it's just very dead simple and quick and right there. And I used to oftentimes from Sketch export to Envision and then add all the touch points, but no. Screw that shit. You literally just you can do it all with Sketch now. It's all built into Sketch prototyping. So it works oh, really, really well. It's super slick. And um, I've been just like really getting deep into Sketch and some of its extensions and features. So that's so cool. Remember in like late 2015 when we just started using Wiz or designing for Wiz and it was like, I remember I had to freaking, I didn't know how to use Illustrator, Sketch. Right? And, and so it was like all <laughs> Illustrator and I had to like export every single board as a JPEG, upload that to Envision 
and then you know make all the touch points and there wasn't like any support for illustrator at the time and designing with yeah. photoshop for like vector is terrible so dude it's just amazing how much like designers workflows improved even yeah four and a half years it's gotten so far even just sketch is, mm -hmm. is an application is awesome anyway Cool. So next week is chapter six. We're looking forward to it. Shout out to everybody out there who has filled out our surveys or sent me an email in the past couple of weeks. You guys are all awesome. Thank you for listening. If you can take a second and leave us a review, or you can also visit our website, iterationpodcast.com. If you scroll to the bottom, you'll see me in JP's Twitter handles and feel free to reach out to us, chat with us, tweet about the show, tell people about it. That'd be awesome. And thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you next week. We will talk to you guys next week. Thank you.